Welcome to the Worldwide Webinar Fellowship, which you can listen to live every first Wednesday of the month at our website, tltf.org. If this is your first time listening in with us, we want you to know that you are loved. Wherever you are joining us from, we hope this message from God's Word encourages, uplifts, and inspires you to grow deeper in your relationship with God and His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you again for joining us. And now here is your teacher, John Lynn. All right. Thank you. And bless you all who are tuning in from coast to coast and around the world tonight. Appreciate you tuning in and keeping us in your prayers. And title of this teaching is, What Did Jesus Christ and Paul Revere Have in Common? Though the answer to the question is, A Sermon on a Mount. Get it? Now, Paul Revere's message basically was the British are coming. That was considerably shorter than Jesus's message, which was basically the kingdom is coming. And he elaborated quite a bit on that, as we will read tonight. Paul's words were apparently quite significant in regard to the future of our country, but they pale in comparison to the timeless truths that King Jesus, which is how Matthew's gospel portrays him, spoke in his inaugural address to his people, Israel. And uh, hopefully you are aware, if you've heard One Day with the Creator or learned this elsewhere, there are four gospels to present four different angles or aspects or elements of the life of Christ. Matthew portrays him as the king coming to Israel. Mark portrays him as a servant. Luke as a man and John as the son of God. Uh, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, what we're going to read, they contain a plethora of primary principles regarding many aspects of life and godliness. However, what Jesus proclaimed must be understood in an administrational context. Now, as many of you are aware, very few Christians grasp the liberating truth that what Jesus said during his earthly ministry was all about and specifically to Israel. He came as the Messiah, the promised Messiah to Israel. Yes, he was the promised redeemer of mankind, but specifically the promised Messiah to Israel. Remember when the Samaritan woman came and said, yo, my little daughter needs to be healed. He said, I'm sorry, I'm union. I only came to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. She said, yeah, well, even the puppies get the crumbs, and it blew his mind that her daughter was healed. If you uh, have the uh, link, if you don't, email me, jaltltf.org, and I'll send you all the links to the three videos. But the, the segment in Jesus Christ the diameter of the age is called, What Did Jesus Know and When Did He Know It? It goes way back to Watergate. What did... Nixon know and when did he know it, but it's one of the best segments in that wonderful video. It lays it out very clearly. This current administration of the secret, Ephesians 3.9, was hidden in God, Ephesians 3.8, I think that is, and therefore Jesus had no clue prior to his resurrection. After the resurrection, he said a couple of things that show that God had clued him in on some future regarding the Christian ecclesia, the assembly, usually called the church. 
And here's another point. There's no juxtaposition between the words of Jesus in the Gospels, which most people laud to the heavens, and rightly so, as long as you know who is he talking to, and the words of Paul in the epistles, because, remember, Galatians 1.11, the words Paul wrote were also the words of Jesus. He said, I got it by revelation from Jesus Christ. So the Sermon on the Mount, the Sermon on the Mount is a commentary on the heart of the law in which Jesus refutes the pharisaical interpretation as legalistic and heartless. Now, in today's theology, I mean, I turned on Moody Radio today. Within a minute, uh, they're talking about, we got to do this for the kingdom and so forth. So you'll hear it all the time. Christian preachers, teachers talking about the kingdom as if it were a present reality. You know, we have to advance the kingdom. We got to be kingdom men and women. We're building the kingdom. Hello. It's kind of dumb to think there could be a kingdom without a king. And Jesus is not yet the king of the world. So, you know, at Christmas, we sing, he rules the world with truth and grace and makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness. Uh, might want to hold that in abeyance. He will do that during the thousand-year kingdom when he comes back to the earth, kicks butt, and sets up his millennial, that means a thousand years, kingdom. Okay, Matthew chapter 5. Here we go. First thing I want to say is you ain't the pronouns, okay? When all these you's and we's and us's and all that, you are the pronouns in the church epistles and elsewhere, Timbo and First John, all that back there. Yeah, but you are not the pronouns in the gospels because Jesus had no idea of Christianity or people whose salvation could be permanent. Now, this stuff is fascinating when you really take it apart. So right off the bat, it says, when Jesus saw the crowds, went up to a mountainside and sat down, his disciples came to him and he began to teach. And the first word is blessed. You could translate it as happy. The NIV study Bible says it refers to the ultimate well-being and distinctive spiritual joy of those who share in the salvation of the kingdom of God. So it's like, blessed, wow, are the poor in spirit. Now, these are the be attitudes, and it's good if they be our attitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, what might that imply? That the recognition of poverty can be a gateway to prosperity. If you don't know you're poor, that is lacking in something you need or want, you make no effort to get it. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. What might that imply? That we should be grieved by our own weakness and not just numb it in some way, but work on it so it becomes a strength. Blessed are the meek, verse 5, for they will inherit heaven floating around in the cloud for trillions of years, bored after 24 hours. No, no. 
They will inherit what? The earth. It's all over the Old Testament. Jesus is coming back with us to set up his kingdom on a renovated earth, and it's going to be awesome. So blessed are the meek, you might say those willing to defer to another in obedience to Christ. Verse 6, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Speaking of food, what does this mean? What is it to hunger and thirst? It's to internalize. It's to desire to internalize something. In this case, the standard that God sets forth for right living, righteousness. And so each of those words, each of these four verses we read, blessed are those who, you know, what we read, recognizes a lack and is overwhelmed by their own helplessness, but motivated to keep going in order to achieve their vision. Now we have some more blessed verses coming up. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Mercy is judgment withheld. What a wonderful trait to cut people slack in the right way, not condoning sin on their part, but recognizing people are human. And the more we get in touch with our own weaknesses, the more merciful we are in dealing with other people. Verse 8, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Mm, That one I put, they don't want any idols. They will not let anything come before God in their lives. Verse 9, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. And my thought about the peacemakers was, these are people willing to risk in order to bring peace to others. And there'd be two categories for that, right? One would be individually. You're fighting for someone who is not peaceful, trying to help that person with something that could help them be peaceful. And then, of course, it implies helping maybe two or three people who are not getting along to get along, a mediation of sorts. Verse 10, blessed are those who are persecuted. Now, look at this verse, happy. Wow, yeah, all that we read about the word blessed. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Oh my gosh, and the theme continues in verse 11. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because you drove 130 in a school zone. No, because of me, Jesus said. You're going to 130 school zone, they better say that stuff about you. But this is not a mindset that comes naturally, is it? Oh boy, I'm being persecuted for Christ, but we can develop it. And I'm going to just cite some verses from Acts or the epistles that corroborate these same principles that Jesus laid out in the administration of the law, which he was basically concluding. Verse 12, rejoice and be glad. And I hope you'll go over this again. There's a lot in here, and I'm trying to get through it here. Verse 12, rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Acts 5.41 says that in the book of Acts, those guys went off rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. 2 Timothy 3.12 says, all those who stand faithful to Christ will suffer 
persecution, especially today. Christianity is totally under assault all over the world. Why? Because there's a devil who inspires people, etc., etc. Okay? So now we go to verse 13. You, you, you ain't that pronoun. Every time you see a you, a me, a we, and us, Israel, you are the salt. Now, the principle crosses over into our administration. You are the salt. You're the flavoring, uh, the spice of life, if you will, of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's not good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. Colossians 4, 6 says, let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. Some people like a lot of salt. Some people like a little salt, whatever. Appropriately, we deal with people. I may have said this last month, but I made up my mind that when I'm talking to some nameless person after being on hold for three days uh, with some government agency or whatever, I'm going to engage that person more so than just, yeah, uh, uh, uh. so I start making them laugh and asking them how's the weather, and it's been really, really great, and some of them really appreciate it. So verse 14, you, because I may not get another chance, probably won't, with that person. Verse 14, you, Israel, are the light of the world. Remember, that's that was God's point for Israel, to be a, a kingdom, a nation of priests, to bring light and salt to the world. They didn't do that well, though, did they? But they will do that in the millennial kingdom, as I hope you're aware of. So Ephesians 5, 8 tells us, you were once darkness, not in darkness, you were dark, but now you are light in the Lord, live as children of light. So Jesus goes on in verse 14, a town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. That wouldn't make much sense. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, and this principle would overlap administrations, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and realize, hey, that guy must be walking with God, with Christ. Oh, I'm going to glorify my Father in heaven. And that's who will get the ultimate glory when you walk with because that's in his stead. Verse 17, don't think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Romans 10, 4. Jesus Christ is the end of the law for righteousness, not the moral law, but the ceremonial law, bathing, dunking, counting, chanting, whatever, all of the Old Testament law. Verse 18, for truly I tell you until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, they had all, I don't know any Hebrew, and they have these little dots and things on there that called a note or a something, and they uh, have something to do with the meaning of the word. But he said, none of that, not even the littlest thing, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. It's exactly the same thing as the kingdom of God coming thousand years. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, Jews, 
And unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Verse 21, you've heard it said, you've heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, not kill, not kill. That's a mistranslation. If you have that, the Ten Commandments, it's not, they're two different words. Because all murder is killing, but not all killing is murder. Words have meanings, okay? Self-defense is not murder. Executing a criminal is not murder. And the social enlargement of that would be a just war, which there haven't been that many. Uh, but like when God sent Israel into the promised land, he didn't tell them, squash those people that are letting you go peaceably by. No, he said, don't touch anybody unless they try to touch you. Then crush them because he had in mind preserving the bloodline of the Messiah to be born. Okay. Anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. 22. But I tell you that anyone who's angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, I watch this again. Anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. Okay. I've never said it. Have you? Do you ever say anything like in traffic? Raka. I don't think so. So no problem. You're off the hook. Okay. Well, what is that talking about? So I looked it up. It said it means empty headed, a, a, a term of utter contempt. And I, I did some research on some of these things. And I think what I'm going to read you here makes sense. Commentary things I found says the very act of murder finds its roots in an angry, murderous spirit. The hatred that causes one person to hurl insults is the same hatred. Now you might start saying that tomorrow. I don't know. Uh, is the same hatred that causes another to commit murder. The attitude of the heart is the same, and it is this attitude that makes a person morally guilty before God. He goes on. Anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of, oh golly, hell. Now, if you look in your lexicon, you'll see it's the word Gehenna, and every Jew listening to him knew, oh yeah, the city dump outside of Jerusalem in the valley of Hinnom, Gehenna, where the fire never stops burning because people keep dumping their trash on it. They all knew. 23, therefore, if you're offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First, this is a matter of priorities here, first go and be reconciled to them, then come and offer your gift. Because remember, the extent to which we love God, oh, this is terrifying, is illustrated by the extent to which we love people. Oh, and we all say, oh, no, I love God way more than I love these creepy people. Well, sorry, that's not what it says. And Romans 12, 18 says, as much as it depends on you, live at peace with all men. In other words, you take the initiative to reach out to a brother or sister to resolve the matter, whether he offended you or she, you realize you offended her. Okay, a lot of principle in here. 25, settle matters quickly with your adversary who's taking you to court. Also get a good lawyer. Do it while you're still together on the way or your adversary may hand you over to the judge. The judge hands you over to the officer. You'll be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, 
will not get out till you paid the last penny. So uh, the thought I had was do your best to mitigate consequences of conflict as much as lies in you. 27, you've heard it said, don't commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Well, first of all, if it gets if it's in your heart, don't let it become an action, okay? Thoughts do not have to become actions. But the point of a lot of this with the law was it's only the fear of consequences that stops a lot of people from doing things. It's not a moral standard that they have internalized for the sake of God and the gospel. It's, dang it, I'll probably get caught and then I... So, and of course, the result could be adultery. The result could be adultery if it becomes an action. And then divorce, which we're going to see in the context coming up here. Verse 29, some people, sorry to say, I've taken this verse literally. Now, you know, they were crazy. But if your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. What's the point? What's he saying? Take whatever drastic measures are necessary to deal with yourself. Psalm 139, 21 to 24 talks about, do not I hate those who hate you? Well, I got to hate the bad stuff in me first. It's a lot easier to see sometimes in other people, but I got to be looking for it in me. He says, it's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into Gehenna. In other words, he's talking about the lake of fire, the final destruction of all wicked people. Remember? Every human who's ever lived, Hitler, Saddam, Bill Beer, whoever, that's a very esoteric joke. Most of you don't worry about it. Uh, everyone will be raised from the dead, good, bad, and ugly, and indifferent, and handsome. Everyone will get up in different groups. You know that. You've got a chart, okay? And everyone will be judged at one time or another. You and I will be judged only for rewards, not for life or death. We've already been found not guilty. If your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off, throw it away. Better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into Gehenna. 31, it's been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, makes her the victim of adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. What? That doesn't make any sense, especially in light of the epistles. And I'll give you a little explanation about that. Okay. So sexual immorality, you can look up different words, the Greek words, porne, and of course, we get pornography and all that kind of thing. But God, as you know, is extremely clear. The only venue for sex that will be, first of all, profitable and not harmful is under the canopy of commitment in marriage. Everything else, he invented it. It's supposed to be awesome, but not in any context other than marriage. Of course, everyone thinks it's awesome, etc. but God says, nah, it's going to hurt you in the long run. So I went to the REV commentary, the uh, revised English version that my former colleague, John Shaneheit, uh, is working on. And uh, so here's, here's, the, here's what it says about that particular verse. The passive verb in Matthew 5.32 shows us that the woman is made to seem like she and the man she later married had committed adultery, even though they had not. So one way of translating Matthew 5.32 is, anyone who puts away his wife except for the cause of sexual immorality makes it seem like she's an adulteress. And whoever marries her when she is put away seems like he 
is committing adultery, unquote. In that culture, the man was the provider and the protector. So Jesus is saying that if a man divorces his wife, everyone will think, oh, it must be due to her sexual sin. But both the law, Deuteronomy 24.1, and the church epistles, that would be you, the pronouns, 1 Corinthians 7.28, allow for remarriage after divorce. And not all divorcees are innocent victims, but some people force a divorce on their spouse for reasons that are unacceptable to God, such as unbridled lust, and God refers to that behavior as adultery. The idea that some person who got married at 18 and the guy became an alcoholic, drug-dealing, wife-beater, and now she can't ever get married, that's insane. That wouldn't be the heart of our God who loves people. No, okay? 33, again, you've heard it was said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord the vows you have made. But I tell you, do not swear an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by the earth, for it's his footstool, or by Jerusalem, you know, by Jove, by God, by Jerusalem, bye-bye, for it is the city of the great king. And don't swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. All you need to say is simply yes or no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. Now, here's what I read about this, and I think this is really pretty good. When someone declares a promise with an oath, he's actually undermining his own personal integrity and honesty. The oath implies, I really truly mean what I'm saying which suggests that other non-oath-bound statements might not be so sincere. There's a built-in suggestion that the oath-swearer has a tentative commitment to honesty. It's also a form of manipulation wherein one seeks to get agreement from another by using dramatic terms. Christ's command for believers is simple. Let your words yes and no be binding in all cases. Anything more is evil. A believer ought to be honest in what he says and does. He should not need the pressure of an artificial oath to follow through on his commitments. A follower of Christ should live a life of integrity such that others trust him without seeking such oaths, like swear on your mother's grave or something. Kids used to say stuff, whatever. Modern culture echoes that with sayings like, a man's word is his bond. Point is, if you will, if you say you'll do it, you will, period. No oath required. All right, verse 38. You've heard it was said, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. Now, don't go to the moon on this yet, forever. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. There's several principles involved here. You and I as Christians are not called to play fair. You scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. You know, even people, you know, anybody's nice to people that are nice to them. And that's what we'll see in, in scripture. So don't play fair. In other words, back and forth. You do this for me, I'll do that for you. No, that's not Christianity. Jesus making the point, go further with people than they would expect you to go. 40, if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, give me your coat as well. Verse 41, if anyone forces you to go one mile, 
go to. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. Here's a note on this little section. This is in regard to personal matters, not self-defense or a governmental restraint of criminality. The point is that what others mean for abuse, we can turn into an example of faithful strength by responding in a godly way, that we can maybe shock people into noticing our godliness by not responding like most people would in kind to their unkindness. 43. Now, this is not in the Old Testament, but what the Jews used to teach. You've heard it was said, love your neighbor, hate your enemy. But I love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. Now, for you and me, it's because we are children of our Father in heaven that we can love our enemies and so forth. And again, doesn't mean you don't stand up and use legal means if necessary, like Paul did with the Roman authorities to those that are trying to kill you, stop your ministry, etc. Okay? He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good, sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love only, in the understanding of the verse, you'll see it coming up, those who love you, here's the point I was making a minute ago, what reward will you get? Even the tax collectors do that. And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect is the word teleos, means mature. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Okay? Quite a chapter. Now, these last two will go quicker. Matthew 6, careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others in order to be seen by them. If you do, you'll have no reward from your Father in heaven. So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets, to be honored by others. They're just looking for acclaim. Truly, it doesn't mean you can't ever tell anybody you help somebody else, for heaven's sake. Truly, I tell you, they've already received their reward in full. But when you give to the needy, and by the way, there are so many verses in the Bible about helping poor people and needy people. Do not yet let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret. These are, there's a lot of hyperbole in here to try to emphasize the point. Then your father who sees what is done in secret re will reward you. Verse five, and when you pray, don't be like the hypocrites for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they've received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. Does that mean you can't pray on a bus stop? Of course not. But it, there's a good point here. In your home somewhere, I think it's a good idea to have a, a quiet place or maybe outdoors under a tree in good weather that you like, that you feel peaceful. Maybe, of course, outdoors you can see God's creation and so forth, but a quiet place in your home that you associate with meditation in the scriptures, hearing from God, and so forth. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. And when you pray, don't keep bad, babbling like pagans, for they think they'll be heard because of their many words, like ten Hail Marys are better than five Hail Marys. It's exactly the kind of thing it's talking about. Don't be like them, for your Father knows what you have need of before you ask Him. This, then, is how you should pray. Our Father, what a start, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. 
your kingdom come, your will be done. No point for us to pray that prayer, your kingdom come, it's coming, whether we pray it or not. And what we want to pray for is doors of utterance, outreach, pockets of faith and spiritual procreation. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Well, right there, we know God's will is not being done on earth most of the time, but we pray that it will be and we can do it ourselves. Verse 11, give us today our daily bread. Those Jews would be thinking about the manna back in Exodus. And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Let's keep reading. Lead us not in temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you don't forgive people their sins, God won't forgive you. You ain't the pronouns. You are the pronouns in Ephesians 4.32, that we should forgive others because of how Christ forgave us. The whole thing is turned around in this administration. As we get to verse 16, I will say there is no biblical mandate to fast anywhere. That is to go without food. Mark 9.29, for example, if you want to look it up, this kind does not come out except by prayer and fasting. Look it up. And fasting is not in the text. Now, some people did fast. Fine. And it has a gob, gobs of health benefits. Intermittent fasting, fasting for a week, once every few months, whatever you want to do. You can read plenty of good stuff about it. Dr. Furman, F-U-H-R-M-A-N, did some great work on the physiological benefits of fasting, and it's pretty good for mental strength and self-discipline too. I suppose food would be my most tempting idol. Uh, at least it's one of them for sure. Oh my gosh. Uh, now, God never instructs us to do so. What is the fast, quote, quote, that God talks about? You can look at Isaiah 58. It's a fast from self, if you will, in order to help others. Great section in Isaiah 58. So verse 16, when you fast, do not look somber as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show others they're fasting. Truly, I tell you, they've received their reward in full. But when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face so you'll look good. Won't be obvious to others you're fasting, only to your father who is unseen. And your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. I love these verses. 19. And we've read them many times, but, you know, the, the scripture of the God's word is rich. It's deep. We can always learn something or see it in a different light or learn to apply it more precisely. Do not store up for yourself treasure on earth where moths and rust, I believe is the word this says vermin, destroy. And where thieves break through and steal. What's the difference? Moths and vermin or rust gradually take things away. A moth doesn't come into your closet and just leave just a hanger where there was a wool suit. No. And thieves don't come and stick you up on the street and say, give me half your money. I'll be back tomorrow. No. They say, give me all. They always say that. Give me all your money. So we can lose things gradually or we can lose things tragically all at once. Verse 20, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin rust do not destroy. Thieves can't get there. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Hope you'll take time to ponder these things. 22, the eye of the body is a lamp. If your eyes, I put your perspective, is healthy. And the only healthy perspective is a biblical worldview. 
I'm I'm working on oh some things for the mid month or the fruit of divine future. And most people just can't imagine the degree of evil in the world today because they don't have a biblical worldview, and they're t- they're just normal nice people. They can't they can't even fathom what wicked people do, and so they poo poo it a lot of times. I can't possibly be right, but it's way worse than probably any of us realize because the devil is pretty bad. So if our perspective is healthy, our whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? If you what you think is the light is darkness, wow, that's really dark. And you won't think to turn the light on because you don't think you are in darkness. 24. No one can serve two masters. Either you'll hate the one, love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one, despise the other. You can't serve both God and money. And I had a note in my Bible, ego can be two things. It can stand for two things, E-G-O, edging God out or exalting God only. 25, you know these verses. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry. Do not be anxious. Do not be divided in mind about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more valuable than they? Can any one of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow? They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? So do not worry, saying... First of all, was do not worry. Now it's voicing that worry, which, of course, you hear every word you speak. What shall we eat? What are we going to drink? What are we going to wear? Well, those are valid concerns, but we need to trust God to care for us. For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. So seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Oh my goodness, that's true. All right, and we're in the home stretch, Matthew 7. Do not judge. It's kind of neat how God made the day and the night go to sleep and like Tomorrow's a new day. Thank God. A clean slate, if you will. Do not judge or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there's a plank in your own eye? So what is he saying? That is how not to judge. And pride, you could say, is eye disease, because I is the middle letter of pride, as per the graphic in the August Fruit of Divine down the page there. So Jesus doesn't say not to judge at all. There's plenty of verses that say judge rightly. In other words, we judge by the perspective of Scripture. It says take the plank out of your own eye, then you can see clearly to remove the speck from your brother. It doesn't say forget the speck. It says do it properly with the right attitude and in love. Verse six, I've got a dog on my bed right here. Do not give dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they may trample them under their feet 
and turn and tear you to pieces. Verse seven, it's the, uh, I don't know, the tense of the verb is, I guess, a present participle. Keep asking and it will be given to you. Keep seeking and you will find. Keep knocking and the door will be open to you. Everyone who asks receives, the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks, the door will be open. Which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil, doesn't mean like wicked all the time, just means human, subject to the sin nature. You know how to give good gifts to your children. Here's the point. How much more will our great, big, wonderful God give good gifts to those who ask him? So in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you, for this sums up the law and the prophets. And you've heard me say, the golden rule, it's so proactive, I mean, golly. So I came up with the silver rule, don't do to others, because you have to do something to do the golden rule. Silver rule, you don't have to do anything. Don't do to others what you know you wouldn't want them to do to you. Makes sense, I think. 13, enter through the narrow gate. Oh my gosh, look at these verses. For wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. And I wrote, no kidding. <clears throat> because, you know, I'm not trying to beat a dead horse. I can't get over the fact, the, the, the privilege, that we understand what we understand from scripture. We're just human like everybody else. And I turn on that radio station to listen to things and I get, I get incensed, but I also, my heart breaks for God that he has to listen to people misrepresent him so badly and make him look like a jerk. It's just sad. 15, watch out for false prophets. They're still around. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they're ferocious wolves. By their fruit, by their actions, you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes? Not if they've got a brain. Or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit, you will recognize them. And based on the standard of the word, that's the bottom line. And then people's actions will generally show how they can fool you for a while, but eventually they will depart from the standard of the word. Now here are verses, the next three, they're quoted as regards to you and me, Christians. All this has nothing to do with anybody in this administration. Verse 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who's in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did not we prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I'll tell them plainly, I never knew you away from me, you evildoers. We ain't the pronouns. You are born again of incorruptible seed and you are sealed forever. And here are the final verses of this wonderful discourse, the inaugural address of Jesus as the king to Israel. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. 
The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat. And I looked up these two words for beat many years ago. And this word means a much more strong and violent beating against that house. Yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and doesn't put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat is more of a gentle force against that house, and it fell with a great crash. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching. Look at this last verse, because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. You and I have been entrusted with the treasure of truth and an understanding of the written word of God, unlike 95% of all Christians through the centuries. So let us speak and teach with the authority that the risen Christ has given to us. Thank you. Uh, I know we covered a lot tonight and hope you'll meditate on it. Thank you for those of you who support our ministry. God's been blessing us with some wonderful gifts lately, and every gift is wonderful. $5, $10 a week, a month, whatever. So if we're blessing you and uh, you're not supporting us financially, please consider doing so. I think you will see the benefits to your life in that regard. Thank you for standing for God, for Christ, for the truth. Uh, I know these times are, they can be extremely depressing. And uh, we just have to focus on our great, big, wonderful God and his promises. And all the wicked people in so many positions of power in the world are fighting against our father. And that is uh, not usually successful. So we'll see what happens. Not over till it's over. I don't know if a fat lady is going to sing, as they say, but Jesus is coming. And maybe we'll get a reprieve to uh, see some relatively good times and so forth. But in the meantime, hey, look at the first century church under the Roman authority and so forth. We, as you've heard me say a hundred times, the darker it is, the brighter your light will shine. So as Jesus said, let our light shine. And we love you. We thank God for you. All of our uh, leadership nucleus loves you, prays for you, and we thank you for your prayers. Okay, thank you, Franco, and uh, he's got a great song to listen to to sign off tonight. Bless your hearts. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me.
God. 